This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the journalist Toby Muse, whose new book is called Kilo, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels, and there's some absolutely hair-raising stuff in it. Toby, welcome. I want to start by asking, how did you, you know, how did a nice boy like you find yourself knocking around with, you know, drug lords and gangsters and killers and so forth in Colombia? Well, I moved to Colombia to set out to become a foreign correspondent. I actually left London, left university in London. Then my first stop was in Argentina. But I really, I wanted to be that foreign correspondent. And to me, at that moment, that meant being involved in conflict. That was part of the idea of being a foreign correspondent. And Colombia at that moment was going through this vicious civil war when I arrived. And obviously, in the background was this cocaine trade that was funding the civil war. And just over years, I just built up this range of contacts within that world. And I kind of wanted to show, I wanted to show the other side, the kind of the eccentricities, the the deep, dark weirdness of the cocaine trade. And I thought that's, I I, I know people have the rough outline of Pablo Escobar's life, but I don't think they knew about the witches, the superstitions, the rituals. And I kind of wanted to show that, what I had seen in my reporting. You've adopted, you know, a style that draws a lot from, a novelist rather than necessarily, you know, a sort of absolutely sobersides academic non-fiction author. What, what was the impulse in doing that? I really wanted to go back to that style. My favourite style of journalism is that new journalism of the late 60s, the early 70s. So Tom Wolfe, the electric Kool-Aid acid test was a huge inspiration. And I just kept going back to that book. Also, a little bit of Hunter S. Thompson. We know that a little bit of Hunter S. Thompson in the wrong hands can go a long way, but also Joan Didion. And yeah, you know, they were kind of adopting those tools from novelists and putting it into their journalism. And, you know, the standout inspiration for this book was Dispatches by Michael Hare, which is this series of, I think, Esquire articles that he turned into a book. And it just kind of really got the weirdness and the deranged sense of being at the heart of the Vietnam War. And that's something that I thought suited the drug war. You know, again, it's it's crazy. It, the drug war is nihilist. It doesn't make any sense. It's insane. You know, the old cliche about doing the same thing and expecting a different result. That is the drug war. We keep doing the same thing and expecting the different result. So I kind of wanted to draw on that because, you know, I think sometimes that, you know, journalism can be going through, I, I, I'm not sure if I hear enough journalists talking about how to really make it entertaining and engage the reader. You know, I think sometimes we're going through a bit of a rut that we've kind of all adopted a very kind of similar style. And I kind of wanted just to go back to that energetic writing. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully I succeeded. You start with this moment in September 2016, which was, at least as you represent it, a point at which things looked like they could have gone differently. Can you tell us a bit about why that moment was important. So the 2016 peace process really brought an end to the conflict between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC as they're known, which was the longest running insurgency on the planet. It had been going for around 50 years 
and it had just been devastating for the country. It really kept Columbia back because it was always the first issue in anybody's mind. They couldn't tackle really anything else. Education, health, they tried their best, obviously, as a country, but the Civil War just kept the country back. So there was this massive optimism across the country. I had never seen anything like it. You would go to the hardest hit parts of the country. There are towns there. There's a town called Torrebio, which claims to be the most affected by terrorist attacks on the planet. They register some 800, 900 terrorist attacks on this one town alone. And you would speak to the people and they would tell you how happy they were, optimistic. They felt they had a chance. But in the background, again, was the cocaine industry. And if the government didn't step in and just take care and put an end to that industry, Colombia was not going to know peace and the government dropped the ball. It got to these zones too late, and unfortunately we're seeing a new wave of bloodshed as the FARC gave up its territory, new narco militias moved in to take over the production of cocaine, and now we see more cocaine on the planet than ever before. As your, you know, what you just said now hints, this is a political story as well as a criminal one, isn't it? Indeed, and I think if anything, I mean, it's strange to say that the biggest villain, I think, is the is the lack of the state, and which is strange when you're talking about a book that has killers for hire, drug lords, and interviews with these people. But it's the lack of the state reaching to the furthest, remotest corners in Colombia that propels this business. And it's this horrible situation where these small farmers and the peasants are just desperate for the basics of life. Infrastructure, again, that's a kind of abstract word. We're talking about roads, bridges, even basic healthcare, basic education. I'm in one zone of the country where they're growing coca, and these farmers had to set up a toll on this dirt track to raise money to build a school. It took them three years. But in the end, it was cocaine that built that school, not the Colombian government. And that's the kind of constant enemy of progress of that country. These people just left abandoned by their government. And that's the kind of really infuriating experience when you're there to see. And you you start with those people. I mean, one of, I think, the great virtues of your book is, is you've sort of structured it, haven't you, as, as something that begins with the coca leaf deep in the jungle and takes you all the way through. Indeed, that was the conceit. It, I kind of wanted to infuse this book with the energy. Like when I thought about writing this book, I really wanted to kind of give it the energy, the thrill of cocaine itself. And so there's that immediate rush, that ever push forward. But also there's obviously the morning after. And that's kind of what the this, these lives in cocaine can feel like. So the coke, the kilo, it just pushes forward. So we start with the small farmers, then we move on to the police who are trying to destroy cocaine. We move on to narco militias. We move into the cartel ecosystem of witches and drug lords, their lovers, the killers for hire. And finally, we end up with the kilo trying to make it to the biggest markets on earth, which are Europe and America. Again, you know, I know everyone knows this, but you just need to keep repeating it. This business is built on demand. You know, it's the laws of economics here. And the cocaine cartels produce cocaine because people in the richest countries on the planet are buying it. Now, one of the things that seems to me very interesting in the way that the book goes through is that you talk about how how it changed and continues to change Colombia, you know, from village to village. The, the sort of country itself has been shaped by this cocaine economy. I mean, you know, these little villages you talk about, to start with, cocaine is kind of a godsend. Money comes in. That sort of follows a, a rather grim trajectory. 
Indeed. I mean, it's kind of, it's impressive how close to the script it always plays out for each of these small little villages. And when you go in, remember, we're only really talking about the mass expansion of coca crops in Colombia is really only a generation old. So roughly 20, 25 years ago, it's been producing cocaine for much longer since at least the 70s. But this widespread across the country, that's a kind of recent phenomenon. So I think the country's had time to kind of really understand a whole generation has lived through cocaine. So you can go to these small villages and you can ask people, hey, how did it come here? And it's always the same. One farmer will bring it in. They will have immediate success. No one ever has trouble selling coca. And then they have money. Their neighbors look at them. They follow in the path. Soon, no one's growing any other crop, so it becomes its own self-fulfilling circle because then every farmer needs to grow coca because the the inflation of prices, because things are now being imported. And so now everybody's under coca sway and it really has this feel of stealing the souls of these villages. So you'll go to these things and the old men and women will tell you, I remember this used to be a town of dignified farmers. We were coffee farmers or we raised cattle and we built this town up. When coca comes, it's this immediate social decay. Prostitutes will come in because there's this life in coca is this don't save, it's a nihilism. Hey, we'll make more money tomorrow, so spend it all. Prostitutes are attracted to this smell of a coca farmer with money. In some parts, the more remote villages in the jungle, prostitutes have chartered planes to land in the towns because they know there's going to be so much money to make. And they land on the the town's only road. There's no airstrips deep down. So you see this as the farmers spend all of the money on drinking and then the narco militias come in because they're attracted by the smell of cocaine as well. They take over. So once you could have gone to the police when you were a legal town, now the police are powerless in these narco towns, these coca towns. So now it's the narco militias enforcing their version of justice, which, you know, is basically whatever they decide that day is justice is going to be. And then you've got the, the bigger towns sort of slightly higher up the hierarchy. There's a kind of hair-raising description of going to the town called, is it, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, La Gabara. La Gabara, exactly, yeah, which is this... Again, there was this... I interviewed a prostitute who was working there. Uh, she was a Venezuelan, and that's another part of this story, how the lower echelons, the lower links of the chain in Colombia, the cocaine industry, have now all been taken over by Venezuelans who have walked out of neighboring Venezuela because of the mass economic mismanagement, corruption, and now recently the US sanctions. People are just literally starving as they walk out and they're finding jobs in the cocaine industry. And I spoke to this prostitute to try and get this idea of what her life was like. And she made this comment that I didn't even realize the first time when I was transcribing the interview. She said, Colombia, it's such a strange country. Even the smallest villages here have had their own massacres. And it was such a kind of, I had grown accustomed to going to these small towns and just kind of, when I lived in Colombia again for more than 15 years, that was normal. And to see this outsider's experience of life at the sharpest end, La Gabara is serious. I mean, there are at least three narco militias competing to take over this town. There's the EPL, that's the ELN, and there's the new dissidents of the FARC. I mean, it's like that Monty Python joke about the, where's it, the People's Judean Front in Life of Brian. They're all fighting each other, this kind of alphabet war. And yes, this is where the farmers come in and they're going to sell their coca. It's this, and it kind of turns these villages into like the Old West. It's this, when I was watching the HBO series Deadwood, I saw a lot of similarities to the gold rush and this coca rush. It's very similar, the cultures, no one's really saving any money. It's this kind of gold rush insanity 
And yeah, it's it's a wild experience. It, I mean, it, the thing about cocaine is, and this is why I wanted to write the book. At one point, it I kind of it occurred to me the thing about cocaine is it feels like you're standing in a casino. Everybody around you is making money. Everybody's having sex wherever they want. And at any moment, someone could step up next to you and put a bullet in your head. That's what that life in cocaine feels like. These massive ups and downs, but death is always present. There's one character you have, Kashot. Or Cachote? Cachote? How do you pronounce him? Cachote. Cachote. Tell me about him, because he seems to be a sort of, you know, almost nadir of the of the nihilism you describe. Absolutely. And so Cachote is this killer for hire. And again, they it's really sad when you just go through, when you speak to all of these killer for hires, it's just always this template. They grow up in this absolute slums. They feel completely excluded from the rest of society. In Latin America, there's this irony that these misery belts are often high on the mountain, so they look down on the city. So you have these millionaire views. And this is where the kids grow up and they kind of look down on the city and everything is laid out before them, but they can't get it because they're growing up in this poverty. And these older men kind of go through and they look for these impressionable, poor teenagers to kind of mold them into future killers for hire. But again, that's a job no one, no one kind of retires out of that job. Because it's just a life of blood and it's a, you know, it's, it will catch up to all of them. And Cachote knows it as well. You know, when you're speaking to him, it's he's getting money to go out and go do some shopping. He spends all of his money immediately as he does a job. He goes out and, you know, he spends three days in these parties that last for days on end with heavy drug use, cocaine. The party drug there is big. It's called 2CB which I had never really heard of. It's this kind of mild hallucinogenic, but mixed with the kind of energy of cocaine. And that's really popular amongst the cartels. And yeah, it's this nihilism. It's that they don't believe in anything. But the strange thing about Cachote is, like a lot of them, he goes and prays to the Virgin of the Assassins. This is this kind of figure they've created. So he goes to the statue of the Virgin Mary and prays for success in his upcoming missions. And, you know, that's the first thing you ask is, right, how can you hold these two things in your mind? That you kill people who have done you no wrong you kill them for money but you obviously believe in god do you not fear eternal damnation like everything he kind of you constantly see this movement to dodge responsibility so what he said to me was well if god lets me kill this my victim my target that means that person has obviously done something wrong and if the person is truly innocent well then it's god's job to step in and stop me from killing them so you see how the drug war just drives these people mad and Cachote is really one of the kind of best examples of that just madness. Also, the extraordinary detail, you say that the murder rate in Medellin spikes on Mother's Day. Yeah. I, again, these are the little things that everyone in Colombia knows. And, and look, I get it. There's reasons why sometimes they don't want to dwell on these things because the country does have so much to offer. But this is a part of life there. But you should say why it spikes on Mother's Day. It's... Yeah. So what basically what happens is these criminals go out go out robbing and killing in order to raise money to buy their presents for their mothers. Also spikes in the run up to Christmas for the same reason. And it's this kind of eccentricity, but it's also a role of the mother there. There's an old phrase, because so many of these families are raised by women, there's the mother in Medellin and Antioquia is this revered figure. And there's a saying, I'm trying to remember how it is, it's like, la cucha solo una, papá cualquier hijo de puta. So mother, you've only got one, dad, could be any old son of a bitch. And that's the kind of thing that you hear across because they're just so devoted to their mothers. And yeah, they go out and rob and kill in order to get 
to buy their mothers these presents. How much was it easy? I mean, in some ways, I guess, you know, as you say, this is this world of complete impunity. So to a certain extent, people aren't worried about incriminating themselves, but also the issues of trust. How do you get people to talk to you? Because I kept waiting for the bit when you were going to break the chain, go, actually, we can't speak to people at this level because I could get a bullet in my head or these, these people are not going to want to talk because they're too important and too dangerous. But you seem to have, you know, managed to talk to, you know, you've talked to hired killers, you've talked to kingpins. How do you do that? Well, I, and to sort of break it down, certainly the things in the countryside are very easy. I mean, I, and again, I think it's important to put the context in here. Colombia is this beautiful country. It's this well-deserved tourist boom, going through a boom in tourism. Well-deserved. You have the beautiful Amazon rainforest. You have these beautiful beaches. But in the remoter corners, there are the coca zones. Now, as a tourist, you're not going to stumble there. You have to actively want to get there. It's not by mistake you end up in a coca field. But once you are in a coca zone, it's very easy to speak to a coca picker, a coca farmer. It is the economy there. And, you know, you kind of give people assurances. You're not going to use their real names. You know, no one's going to end up in prison because they spoke to you. So that's actually very easy. I wanted, there were, were a few things I really did want to include for the book that I wasn't able to. I wasn't able to get into the, the laboratories where they make the pure cocaine. I was negotiating this for weeks. I also wanted to speak to the new dissidents. I didn't get a chance to speak to those. I did speak to other narco militia people. When you come into the cartels themselves, that is trickier. Again, I, I mean, if you're a journalist in Colombia for any amount of years, unfortunately, it's not difficult to find a sicario, a hired killer to interview. You know, they're in every major city and this is the corruption of cocaine. It's kind of spread this killing for hire as a profession. So these killers work for something called collection offices. Every major city in Colombia has it. And assassination has become... I mean, I don't want to use the word mainstream because that's not that's not the case. But, you know, you see all of these cases of business disputes between different businessmen and women. And it ends with one of them hiring a contract killer. Now, the one that was hard, obviously, and is very difficult is the drug traffickers themselves. I basically, you know, I met someone about 10, 12 years ago. It's I, I, I met someone who was very low down in that world and who was in the social scene of that world. And through him, he opened up a number of doors and I was able to get to these drug lords. This drug lord in particular, a man who I called Alex. But again, there was this constant announcement that I was a journalist. Whenever I would turn up to a town, it's the first thing you have to do is you have to shout from the rooftops, I'm a journalist. Otherwise, you know, there can be questions of trust or people may think I work for the CIA, the DEA or MI6. You know, you have to be very upfront. I'm here to do this book. If you want to participate, great. If not, no problem. Let's just walk away from each other. I, the, the book doesn't work by me being deceitful or hiding my intentions. That actually puts me in more danger. Did it make a difference? I mean, how did it affect the dynamic that you were a foreigner, that you're a Brit as well as a journalist? Because, I mean, a lot of journalists in Colombia don't, don't fare so well. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of elements to that. Definitely, I think this book would have been impossible without the sacrifice of so many journalists in the preceding years. You know, they, the Colombia for a while has been an extremely dangerous country for journalists to operate, the local journalists. And these journalists so they have been killed in the major cities for pursuing stories about corruption. But, you know, I mean, in the big cities is one thing, but the real heroes are these ones who just work for the local community station in a very violent zone and just won't stop reporting. 
And when they get killed, it's so tragic. But, you know, there are organizations trying to give aid to these journalists who are working in the hardest conditions. Amongst us as the foreign correspondents, rightly or wrongly, we sort of feel that we have that extra shield that does the narco militia want to get involved in something? Do they want to bring extra hassle on them by killing us? I think they think twice. So I think in these cases, we would get a warning to move out. Look, you can't report here, whereas, you know, other journalists may not get that. Interestingly, I think over the years, I noticed something and I wonder, and I think this would apply to a Colombian journalist going to London as well. When you're talking to people who really feel excluded, who are really feel they're at the bottom of a society, they, I think, sometimes open up more to a foreigner because they don't see the foreigner as complicit in their situation. They don't blame the foreigner. So again, when I was able to speak to people at the absolute margins, I think sometimes they would open up more to me instead of the kind of the high class Colombian reporter who turns up and they're like, they look at that person and say, I know all about you. You're the person who's been lording it over me all my life. Oh, this foreigner, you know, he, he's not to blame for that. And I, I feel that that would be the case if a Colombian journalist went to, you know, some of the most marginal parts of London. And perhaps, do you see what I mean? I think there is that yeah, kind yeah. of dynamic. What is the attitude in Colombia to the cocaine trade as a whole? I mean, I mean, because it's so sort of ingrained in the society. I mean, you talk interestingly about how, you know, a lot of them are nostalgic for Escobar, that, you know, he's il patron. He's, he's this kind of figure who, who sort of, to some extent, kept people safe, looked after people, provided what the state wasn't providing. I'm wondering how deep that goes. Well, I mean, so the official story is, and this is the one, and it's, you know, it's layers and layers and classes all tied up in this. The official story, when the when the country is explained in the English language to foreigners, it's all about, we hated this, that we're so glad that this is the end of the, with the death of Pablo Escobar, we've kind of put behind us the age of the large kingpins. But that's not really true. I mean, so I think you can split well, obviously, there's many different opinions, but I'll kind of go through some of them. For some Colombians, the drug trade has been the most humiliating plague imaginable on their country. They feel that they've been stigmatized by the rest of the world. Every single Colombian feels that they've been stigmatized as possible drug traffickers because of the actions of this tiny minority. Every Colombian will tell you of an experience of traveling abroad or meeting a foreigner and within a minute, the foreigner making a joke about Pablo Escobar. The foreigner doesn't know how insulting, how humiliating Colombians feel when they get that joke. When I would live in Colombia and I would go back to London, there would always be a friend of a friend I would meet in a pub and they'd say, oh, where do you live? Oh, Colombia. Oh, first thing, did you bring back any kilos? For many Colombians, it, it's enraging. So the people, the most anti-drug people I've ever met in my life have been these Colombians who oppose the cocaine industry with all of their soul. They hate the idea. They know it's the consumption of drugs in places like New York, London, Paris, Lagos, Tokyo that fuels this trade that has done so much damage to their country. On the other hand, if you do speak to the old timers, you know, a lot of people will kind of look back on the time on the time of Escobar and a frequent thing you'll hear after the second beer. Things were better. Everybody had a job. Those who didn't have a job didn't want to work. So there is this kind of this struggle over the narrative. And even today, you know, in, when you go, there's a whole neighborhood in Medellin called Pablo Escobar neighborhood. When you speak to the people there, the people who were there for the creation of that, they'll all tell you. Don Pablito, as they'll call him, did nothing wrong. It was the elites of this country, the oligarchy of Colombia, 
that couldn't stand to see this humble man do well. They blamed him for all of them. They just won't hear a bad thing said about him. So again, it's this, yes, yeah, this struggle for the kind of memory of the country you sometimes feel you're watching. Yes, and you talk also about that that aspect of the class structure that the you know the the dons the cocaine barons, they kind of almost their uniform you say is the sort of poncho slung over the shoulder the you know round belly that they they very much I think you described one of them saying he'd he looked like somebody who'd burp in the face of your granny. <laughs> I mean, this is a drug lord called Loco Barrera, Daniel Barrera. I defy any listener of this to go find a picture of him and tell me I'm wrong. He does look like the man who would put up in your grandmother's face. So, I mean, and this again was one of the things I wanted to write about this. I kind of wanted to present the narcos of 2020. So again, those old style drug lords, they were household names, their faces were on the front page of the newspaper and they were eccentric and they, they had roots in the countryside and these were the men who had gold-plated toilets or they would build swimming pools in their mansions in the, the shape of the province they were from. It was a life of eccentricity. So one was called Soap and he had a hundred versions of the exact same tracksuit. That's all he would wear. So that was the old style. Now today you're, we're dealing with something that has been called the Invisibles. These are much lower profile drug traffickers and they're operating in the shadows. They don't want to they don't want their face to be known. They're, they know that a life in the shadows, they can live that much longer. And they're trying to change the rules of the game. You get the sense because the old style drug traffickers understood it's this kind of live, live one day as a lion or 100 years as a sheep. And I'll, I'll live, you know, live fast and die young. That was the deal in cocaine. These new traffickers are trying to change that. They want to be like international businessmen. And again, they dress like it. Alex, the trafficker I knew, was exactly like that. You know, he would change his appearance every time I would see him to keep one step ahead of his enemies. But he always looked like, you know, a young businessman, a successful businessman. And I think that's the evolution of cocaine. And that's the other thing. By the end, you kind of feel that this cocaine almost becomes like an organism and it's in constant evolution. It's like something out of sci-fi. It's evolving in front of our eyes. Every time we try and curb it, it learns from our attack on it and adapts and improves. Something you talk about in the post-Escobar period, the rise of what you call the Gulf Cartel. And there's a sort of terrifying kind of anecdote that is the baddest guy, the one who breaks all the rules. When they pick him up, he says, watch out because I'm I'm not the end of the line at all. Indeed. And that's another thing I mean about this book is because, again, I mean, this book was is also the result of a kind of frustration of just seeing a country and the people I love just condemned to live through these circles, these endless cycles of the drug war. So every time the government, even when they killed Escobar back in 93, they said, oh, that's it. The age of the big drug lords is over. We've made a irreversible dent in cocaine when they captured local Barrera, which was what was that 2012, 2014, some, one of those years recently, again, the president of Colombia came out and said, I can announce the end of the large drug traffickers is over. Local, local Barrera is being brought back by the police and he's talking to them. There's video, there's police video of this. He's sitting there with this. And as you say, it's this chilling conversation. He's like very chatty with the police. He's saying, you guys don't get it. There's something really evil coming from the north west of the country. Now that's the banana zone. It's this notoriously violent, beautiful part of the country called Uruba. But it has uh, this history of violence, unfortunately. And there's this Gulf clan cartel has risen there. They grew out of the ashes of this 
just disastrous peace deal between far-right death squads. That was about 2005-2006. Basically what happened is in that peace deal, the government basically decided to kind of imprison some of the leaders of the far-right death squads, but let the mid-range commanders go home. The mid-range commanders are the deadliest. These are the men, sometimes women, but mainly men, who are there, who know the roots of cocaine, who are the ones who carry out the ambushes. These are men of action and knowledge in the underground. So these men went home, they get back to their region, they've got nothing to do, so they're like, you know, let's start trafficking cocaine. We know of all of the roots. And so this is the largest cartel at the moment in America, in um, South America, the Gulf Clan, and it's led by, was led by these two brothers, and the one remains, Otoniel. And he's this notoriously unpleasant man. He's tried to, you know, him and his subordinates have this taste for underage girls. And they've got this, he's tried to negotiate handovers, but the, the government of Colombia usually doesn't negotiate with traffickers. It will negotiate if a group has a kind of political ideology. But the irony, and cocaine loves its irony. So you have one of the wealthiest men on the continent, Otoniel, who oversees massive amounts of cocaine shipments. But because he's so hounded by both the CIA, we know are involved in this operation as well, and the Colombian army, we understand that every day he moved from one jungle shack to another on the back of a donkey, always on the run in one of the wettest zones on the planet under these constant torrential downpours. So he has possibly billions of dollars, but that's his life. It's a life of utter misery, and this is where cocaine has, has landed him. Now, this attempt to solve it, you know, they are trying, they're trying to catch these guys or the, the biggest of them. Is there sort of any hope for it? I mean, you describe how there was a shift after, I think, the Bush years from, you know, spraying carcinogenic herbicides from the sky, which was safe for the, the people who were spraying it and not so good for the people underneath, to this manual eradication where the people trying to cut down or pull up the coca plantations are being blown up by IEDs. I mean, obviously, neither of these seems satisfactory. Is there any sort of progress in that department? I mean, no, not really. If we look back 20 years ago, there was this very famous big plan called Plan Columbia. It was finalised, I guess, at the end of the Clinton years and adopted wholeheartedly by the Bush presidency. Around 2000, it comes into operation. This is going to give billions and billions of dollars to Colombia to help a kind of military strategy to kind of take down the cocaine industry, basically. So at the beginning of that, they announced their goal that within five years, their goal is to cut coca crops by 50%. Fast forward 20 years, the result, we have more coca, more cocaine than ever before. When people, if people are mistaken when they think that Pablo Escobar was the heyday of cocaine. No, there's much more cocaine out in the world today than ever before. And now, with this, the announcement that there's more coca, more cocaine than ever, the Colombian government has announced a new plan. The goal for 2023, cut coca by 50%. It's this constant moving in circles. And to his credit, former president Juan Manuel Santos, the one who oversaw, who oversaw that peace deal, to his credit, he tried to get the world talking about this while he was in office. We have across Latin America, and I guess in the UK and America as well, politicians who, once they step down, become much more rational about the drugs industry. And they say, well, look, we need to start looking at alternatives. This isn't working. While he was in office, Juan Manuel Santos tried to get the world, he would give these big interviews knowing that they would cause a splash. And in one of them, he said, the drug war for us 
is it feels like you've gone, you're sitting on an exercise bike, you pedal for half an hour, you sweat, you get off, you look, you haven't moved an inch forward. That's what it feels like. And Colombia has by far paid the highest cost for this. When President Richard Nixon talked about the war on drugs, again, it was abstract. It was like the war on poverty. It is a war in many parts of Latin America, in much of Colombia. Now it's bleeding into Central America that has become this transit point for cocaine. And of course, the notoriously high levels of violence in Mexico. A lot of this is because of cocaine. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of progress. As you say, the Trump administration wants to go back to aerial fumigation. How are they going to resolve the problem about these herbicides being potentially cause cancer? I, I don't know, but it won't solve it. Yes, it will cut down some of the coca, but you're, you're, you're spraying, you're destroying crops of a family already in desperate need. What are they going to do when they have no crops? They're just going to go back in three weeks, plant more coca. We know the solution, which is to work with the farmers. It costs money. It takes time. Yes, but spraying costs a tremendous amount of money as well. But if we work with the farmers, give them projects, let them grow up pineapple farmers, you know, raise chickens, give them a stipend for a year or two. And that had such a high rate. I think the, the success rate for that policy was basically 99% success. Now, we know with manual eradication, I think it's a third will replant within a month or so of having their crops ripped out. We need to change our approach to this. And of course, by the way, I talk about Colombia producing more cocaine than ever. Colombians can quite rightly look back at the world and say, what has the world done about curbing demand for the drug? I don't see any country really seriously tackling, like coming up with a new innovative way of tackling demand. Well, that, that's something I wanted to get to. I mean, in the process of the time you spent in Colombia, you know, when you come back, you say your friends will we go sort of, oh, did you bring back a kilo? You know, middle class people in this country and in America who would sort of turn their nose up at an egg that wasn't free range will nevertheless kind of think a cheeky line on a Friday night is fine. Has your sort of attitude to them and your attitude to the attitudes here changed in the process of doing this work? Not really. I know for some friends, other correspondents, Americans and Brits in Colombia, they really did. They became radical. I mean, just really hated the idea. They took that kind of that rage that you see from other Colombians and they kind of would go back to New York and just couldn't stand the idea. I kind of take back, you know, again, because we've gone through all of this before. I look back to prohibition. We know that prohibition and again, very similar to the drug war. Take someone like Al Capone. This is essentially an unremarkable man. El Chapo, the famous Mexican trafficker. This is not a remarkable man. Otoniel. Look, there's videos of him like reading and you know, reading to the camera, offering up to hand over to try and do a peace deal with the government. Again, not a remarkable man. What they are is they're vicious, they're mean, they're ambitious, they're merciless. Men like that thrive in the underworld. But we, through our policies, create that underworld where they thrive. And when we look back on prohibition, I don't look back and say, you know what, the villain of that piece was the working man or woman going, trying to get their beer at the end of the week. And I think there's something similar here. I understand the rage Colombians feel towards users. I just don't share it. I think it's mainly the policies that we're overseeing that in our name are being carried out that annoys me and upsets me much more. Was cocaine something that you'd tried as a young man before you went to do this? Yes, yes. Did you find yourself going, Christ, shouldn't have done that? 
No, I mean, not really. I mean, you know, I used drugs in university, marijuana, cocaine, LSD, and then just kind of, you know, I, I think you just grow out of it at some point. By the end of university, you know, again, it just, you're looking for these experiences at a certain time in your life that aren't appropriate for other times of your life. Do you think that the solution in some ways is to legalise? You're one of those people who's come through thinking, you know, if we could get ethical cocaine, that would be tickety-boo and that would dismantle the vast kind of criminal networks that essentially have replaced the government in Colombia. I do have a kind of libertarian attitude to a certain part of this is that I don't believe the government should have the right to tell me what I can put in my body. You know, I mean, who's Boris Johnson to tell me or President Trump to tell me what I can put in my body? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I mean, more from a practical point of view rather than a theoretical one. I mean, do you think it it would be something that could solve some of these problems. I mean, I'm open to the idea. I'm not a firmly committed saying I know that legalization is the answer. I know, again, many people do kind of just throw their hands up when they look at the drug war and just say, that's it, that's the only possible solution. I will say though that you can be in favor of it, but man, you've got to go out and make that argument. What's the, what would be, I think I saw something that, Sorry, I can't remember the poll, but how many people really believe in legalizing all drugs? That I mean, those people who really do believe in that, in legalizing heroin, cocaine, they have their work cut out for them to go and convince the rest of society. Because the rest of society is nowhere near on that page at the moment. I mean, people, you know, for understandable reasons, have a concern about widespread use of or widespread availability of these drugs that can be extremely dangerous. Although I should note the difference in overdoses, deaths from cocaine and heroin, there's a massive difference. Heroin is much deadlier in that sense than cocaine. Although, you know, cocaine overdoses are shooting up at the moment, again, as the world struggles with this kind of record, record output of the drug. Perhaps it's just the times we're recording it in, but obviously we're recording this down the line because we're all on lockdown for the COVID-19 outbreak. How do you think, given your knowledge of how all this works, a world sort of effectively in lockdown, borders closed, will that have an effect on the distribution and trafficking of cocaine? I mean, I guess it must do. I was reading something that one drug dealer was interviewed and talked about how he or she, their clients were stocking up on the drugs to get through these these cold, miserable days of self-isolation. I mean, the, the, the cocaine will stop if there is a stop to international trade, but I'm not sure how much that's really been affected by the shutdowns. Cocaine is often hidden in shipping containers, the narco subs. These are the narco submarines that are almost entirely underwater, save for a couple of pipes that come out above the surface to bring in oxygen, expel the exhausts. I mean, I, I presume they're still they're still going under the water. Cocaine is a huge industry and people devote their lives to it. It's like any other industry. If it just stops, these people don't earn. So I think they need to keep it going. But that was something I kind of started to think about how cocaine runs along the grooves of what honest men have created. So honest men and women will build a highway. Cocaine will take it over. Honest men and women will create an airline route or build an airplane. Cocaine will try to get in there. You know, cocaine is this ultimate kind of globalized commodity coming from these fields of Colombia to every corner on the planet. So, and the, the money there to be made is fantastic. I mean, just to throw some figures out. Again, I didn't want to go too heavy in this book on figures and statistics, because I think those books have been written before, but a kilo of pure cocaine in Colombia is $1,600. I think the highest price I've seen 
for a gram of cocaine is 240 in New Zealand. So let's just say $240,000. I mean, what other business on the planet gives you that type of markup? And by the way, a lot of foreigners have figured this out. So now it's constant. You're seeing these news stories in Colombia about backpackers who are getting caught at the airport with a kilo or two in their luggage. You know, the, the dollar signs, the pound signs go before their eyes and they start imagining what they could do with all of that money. And the temptation becomes too much. Well, I hope that this gives our listeners, those of them contemplating a Friday night line, some pause for thought. Anyway, Toby Muse, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. It's been it's been fun. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.